Well, worshiping like it's 99 AD. Now, be honest, when you heard the word tradition, you thought of organs, old people, robes, and relics, didn't you? Come on, come on, admit it, admit it. Who, who thought of, yeah, yeah, irrelevant, boring? It might surprise you to know that the majority of the people worshiping in the great tradition this Sunday, this weekend, those of you here, those of you watching online, might be surprising to you that, that the average person worshiping in the great tradition is under the age of 30 and is using drums and dance. It's true, most people worshiping in the great tradition this weekend are African. Because the great tradition isn't about the tools used, organs versus drums, but about the pattern followed. And it's a pattern that was given to us by the first Christians. Pattern was present very early, even before the witnesses sat down the New Testament in writing. And it was fully present and fully developed by the beginning of the second century. And so this morning, we are looking at that pattern and worshiping using elements from that pattern. And it's a little, I feel sort of like I'm standing in Lake Tahoe, splashing a little something on you. You know, like you're getting wet and it's Lake Tahoe, but, but it's just like a little taste. So, so here we go. Um, first place we see that pattern is on the road to Emmaus. Jesus explained what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He explains the scriptures, that's the word. And, and then he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. He, he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives bread, that's table. Word and table, that's the pattern. Service of the word, that's all about the scriptures. We read it, sing it, pray it, proclaim it, and respond to it. The, the way the church has historically responded to the word was by stating their faith in creeds, by praying for the world, by, by confessing our sins, and by passing the peace, which, which by the way, isn't give a friend a high five, say, say it's great that you're here. The, the tradition's actually seeker insensitive. And really what you were supposed to be doing at that point was finding a brother you've got a problem with and doing reconciliation with them because Jesus said, before you come to the table, go make things right with a brother. So they put it right there in the service, the word of God. Now, the word of table, the, or the service of the table, that's the reenacting of the sacred meal that Jesus gave his followers and hosted for his disciples on the night he was betrayed. So if you notice in that Emmaus passage, there's the outline, word and table, but there's also an outcome. Their hearts burned when he opened the scriptures. Their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread. Our hearts burning at the word, our eyes being open in the breaking of the bread. People, that's worship, isn't it? That's what happens when we worship. Our, our eyes are opened, our hearts burn. Another place we see this pattern is Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, grammatically, the apostles' teaching is set with the fellowship. In other words, they're, they're meeting together for teaching the word. 
And, and the breaking of the bread is set with the prayers. More than a meal, the followers of Jesus are doing their set Jewish meal prayers, adding in the meal that Jesus gave them. The table, word and table. There it is. Anybody watching The Chosen? You, you see them in The Chosen doing those Jewish meal prayers every time they gather for a meal. Now, now another term for this pattern is the liturgy. Liturgy is a Greek word, letergia, and it was the word for a private work for public benefit. A private work for public benefit. So it's as if Plum Creek built a, a, a giant fountain in the town square, a fountain that was so amazing that people came from miles around. Hey, forget Breckenridge. We're going to, we're going to, to Castle Rock. We're going to go see that fountain. That, that fountain is so big. Well, how is it there? It's those people from, from P-Squigs. They did it. Can I call you that? I feel like I've been here three services now. I'm, I'm, I'm one of you. You know, Doug's a great friend. You should be too. So, so if Plum Creek built this fountain in the town square and gave it to the city, that would be a liturgy. You paid for it, but it's for them. So think about that. The early and persecuted church a church that we would think would need to gather together and worship to draw strength to go live in a world that wanted them dead, would see worship as being to edify themselves, but they didn't at all. They saw the liturgy as being there to bless God and to benefit the ungodly. Hey, they kill us, we pray for them. Now, now where did the liturgy come? By the way, I'm quoting Justin Martyr when I, when I say that. You kill us, we pray for you. We're not bad citizens, we're great citizens. He also said, we pay our taxes without complaining, unlike everyone else in Rome. Where did the liturgy come from? Scholars say that although the pattern of Scripture and Supper develops as the New Testament was written, it's already present in the, early, the earliest of the New Testament writings, which, which actually makes sense because it's really just a continuation of our Jewish roots. It, synagogue where the scriptures were read and the temple where the sacrifice was made. Scripture and sacrifice in the days of Jesus become scripture and supper for the church, which makes sense because Christ died once for all. We don't need to keep having sacrifices. The sacrifice was made. So now we reenact the sacrifice at the table. It's not a replacement it's not a redo, it's a reenactment. So scripture and sacrifice become scripture and supper. And, and we, um, we use a bunch of terms for this, communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, which is the Greek word thanksgiving. And really whatever term you use really just tells you the values of your church's founders at the time. Because all three of those terms are biblical. They all come out of 1 Corinthians, either 1 Corinthians 10 or 1 Corinthians 11. Now, the development of the liturgy, you were talking about it's, it's already present at the, in, in Jesus, with Jesus and the 12 around the fire. It develops through the New Testament era. And by 150 AD, a converted philosopher named Justin, we, we call him Justin Martyr. That's, that's not his last name. It's what happened to him. Happened to lots of Christians. Justin, though, was a really good writer and a really famous guy. It was Justin, the one you probably shouldn't have killed. 
So he wrote a defense of Christianity to explain what Christians do in worship to suspicious pagans. And so thinking about how early 150 AD is, if you take a look at the timeline here on your screen, um, Jesus is resurrected and, and ascends to be with the Lord in 30 AD. John, last of the writers of the New Testament, writes his gospel around 90 AD. Justin Martyr writes about 150 AD. That really means that the length of time between John's gospel and Justin's apology, six decades, is the same length of time between John writing his gospel and John walking with the Lord. Now, now here's, the, the, um, here's Justin's spiritual pedigree. Justin was discipled by a guy named Polycarp, who's a famous martyr in the church. Polycarp was a disciple of John's, and John is a disciple of Jesus. That's pretty tight family lineage right there. And so Justin describes worship in 150 AD as, as how every Christian has always worshiped everywhere. And so after describing the service of the word, he describes the service of the table. And here's what he says in his apology, the 67th chapter. He says, when our prayer is ended, that's the prayer for the world, bread and wine and water are brought and the president, that's the guy presiding over the service, that generally in those days it would have been a bishop, in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent, saying amen. In fact, actually, if you don't say amen at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, it doesn't count. You have to say, so be it. Yeah, that works. If you don't do the amen in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer we're going to, I got to start over and fix it. And after the amen, there's a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. And, and afterwards, to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons and they who are well-to-do and willing give what each think, sees fit. You know, that's irrational generosity in the early church right there. And what's collected is deposited with the president who feeds the orphans and widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want and those who are in bonds, and the strangers sojourning among us. So after the word, they go to the table, and then they take whatever's left over out into the world and, and serve the world. So word and table is the universal pattern of worship by the spiritual grandchildren of the apostles in 150 AD. Um, across space and time. You, you might be, those of you who are, um, who are here and those of you who are watching online, you might be surprised to know that 98% of all of the Christians who have ever lived have worshipped according to that pattern. And that about 75% of the Christians living today also worship using that pattern. Now, that's kind of hard for us to you know, believe as evangelicals in America because most evangelicals sort of don't worship according to that pattern. Um, and, and so um, the question is, why is that stuck around so long and so hard? Especially when those of us who use those traditions have tried so hard to keep it irrelevant. You know, we, we've gotten it stuck in the container of organs and choirs and robes. Usually, I'm in a robe when I'm preaching on a Sunday. How, how is it stuck around in lieu of all of that? And, and I think the reason why is because it's formative. And here's what I mean by that. Um, when, when my kids were young, 
they were, they were super colicky. And they were just miserable. I mean, they were so, they would just scream. We had friends who said, I, I don't know what they're doing wrong, but they are doing something wrong as parents. They were just so, in, in so much pain. And we couldn't, we couldn't understand them because they couldn't speak yet. And we could hardly wait for them to develop language to express themselves. What we really wanted was them to develop language so they could to tell us how they were feeling. They could tell us when they hurt. They could tell us when they were happy. They could tell us when they were hungry. They could tell us when they were full. E- expressive language is an awesome gift. But at some point, at some point we wanted more from our children's language. We wanted language to shape them. We wanted language to form them into who they should be. We wanted to use language, for example, to teach them not to hit little brother. Because big sister liked to hit little brother. And in worship, expression is beautiful and wonderful. But at some point, we want worship to do more than that. We want worship to form us into the people we should be, to develop in us the character of Jesus Christ. Here's a quote from Mark Galley. He was the, uh, the, um, the oh gosh, what was, the, uh, I don't know, senior editor of Christianity Today or something like that. He, he was a, a famous, impressive guy. The purpose of the liturgy is not to express our feelings toward God, but to allow God to impress the character of Christ on us. You know, it, it, and really, we want both, right? We want to express our heart toward God, our gratitude, our thanksgiving, our praise, and we also want to be formed into his image. It's not either or, it's both and, isn't it? Hey, can I get an amen on that one? Yeah, that's where you talk back to the preacher. Worship should be both and, right? There we go, okay. I, I suspect that liturgical worship has been persistent, not just because it's biblical, but because it impresses the story of the faith upon our hearts. Now, sometimes people tell me, Matt, liturgy is boring and repetitive. Is anybody, anybody from a liturgical tradition? Is it boring and repetitive? Yes. And I tell people, that's a feature, not a bug. It's supposed to be boring and repetitive. It's the power of repetition. As a kid, I was a ball boy for the Phoenix Suns. And, and as a ball boy, my gig became working the visitor's locker room. And I come in one night, and I usually get there about 5 for a 7.30 game. And, and so I come in, and, and I'm, um, I'm walking in, and I see the arena lights are on. They're not supposed to be on. And I hear a basketball bouncing. And, and I think, what in the world? And so I turn to the security guy, and I go, what's going on? And he says, oh, yeah, there's some, some rookie is in there shooting around. He's been in there like 45 minutes. And I'm like, the team doesn't show up for another half an hour. What's he doing? I don't know. Some guy. Who is it? Some, some kid named Larry Bird. <laughs> so I go inside to see what this kid is doing. He's, he's a, he, a, at 45 minutes earlier, he'd started under the basket. 10 shots, 10 shots, 10 shots, 10 shots. Takes his offhand. 10 shots, 10 shots, 10 shots. Steps back. 10 more shots all the way around the horn. Ten more. He, he's using both hands till he's outside the free throw line. 
And then he just goes to his dominant hand. By the time I walk out, he's at the three-point line. He says, hey, kid, shag balls for me. Okay, I'm curious about this weird kid. It's, it's like, I think it's 1978 or 9, and it's like the first year of the NBA three-point line. Nobody uses the NBA three-point line in those days. It's the desperation shot. If you were like the star guard at the end of a game, if you were desperately behind, you might start jacking up one or two three-pointers, trying for a miraculous comeback. Not a weapon at that point. And here's Larry Bird, a rookie, a big man at the three-point line. And so I'm like, okay, he's he, good on him. Hey, he wants to try some three-point shots. That's really nice. Now, he's making like nine out of ten all the way around the horn. And then he steps back from the line. And I'm thinking, well, that's just dumb. No one steps back from the line. You run up to the line and you crank up your shot. And here he is. He takes two steps. And then he takes three steps. Now he's 10 feet behind the three-point line. And I finally just go, hey, look, man, I've got to work. This is dumb. <laughs> and, and so Larry Bird, he takes like three steps back and he goes back to that hash mark. You know that line like halfway between the half-court line and the three-point line? And he looks at me and says, you never know when I might not bury a shot from here to take out your beloved Phoenix Suns. And I just go, whatever. Well, at the end of the game, the Suns are up by two. They throw the ball in to the rookie he bounces the ball about three times, and he's within about two feet of where he told me he was going to hit a shot, and he cranks it up, and it goes off the glass and in, and the, my beloved sons call timeout. They're now down one with the, with the time in the game running out, and Larry Bird comes running in, and I'm standing there with my little towels to throw them to the players, and Larry Bird looks at me and goes... And looking at Larry Bird, I gave him a different finger. <laughs> okay, I was like 13 and I wasn't a Christian. <laughs> Larry Bird could hit shots nobody else could hit because he practiced more than anyone else practiced. Practice leverages the power of repetition. The liturgy is repetitive because it's a one-hour practice for the Christian life. A few years ago, we started this church with some Young Life families, and one of, those, one of those guys that was part of that leadership team comes to me and he said, hey, Matt, this morning my three-year-old was in the shower holding out his hand saying, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Well, that's the sanctus. It's, it's a, a song we sing in the opening of the Eucharistic prayer. It's the song Isaiah saw the angels singing in heaven in Isaiah 6. We, we, read, we, we sang, here am I, send me. That's, that's from that same vision. It's the song that St. John said we'll be singing with the angels when we get to heaven in Revelation 7. It's being sung in the shower by a three-year-old. That's the power of repetition. When I'm with dear saints who've had dementia for years, and on their deathbeds, when I begin to pray the liturgy, often their lips will begin to move. And people who haven't spoken a word in months 
will begin to repeat every single word. Because the liturgy teaches us how to live lives oriented around the gospel. And if it is written on your heart by repetition, like the grooves in a record album, the needle will just stay in those grooves and will track no matter what else happens in your life. If those scriptural words are impressed on your soul, they will, they will be the first and last ones on your lips. Now, what happens in the Eucharist? We invite one another to the table. The Lord be with you. We step out of time and join the heavenly host in their eternal worship in the Sanctus, holy, holy, holy. The song the church triumphant sings before the throne of the Lamb. We, uh, we take bread and wine and we bless it using the words Jesus gave us. We proclaim our faith, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And in the presence of the consecrated Eucharist, we pray the words that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven. Then we break the bread and give the bread to you. And what we'll do this morning is, is we'll just go clockwise. There'll be someone at the front and, and you'll just walk to the front, to the, the left side of your aisle, and then come back to your seat clockwise after receiving communion. And, and you, can, you can take it back at your seat after you receive it from someone. They'll, they'll hand it to you, and they will say, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to do. Take your right hand over your left. So just, let's just practice that together. Put your right hand over your left. What we're doing is taught by a bishop named Cyril of Jerusalem in the fourth century. He said to receive the Eucharist, we put our right hand over our left and make a throne for our king. It's pretty good, huh? You know, we don't, we don't clutch at grace. We receive it. It's a gift. So what happens to the Eucharist? Christians have been arguing about what happens to the Lord's Supper for a thousand years. Is it a magic cracker or is it a happy meal? <laughs> now, I'm, I'm broad brushing centuries of long and complicated arguments here, but in simplest terms, Rome overdefined communion in about 1000 AD, saying, in effect, the Eucharist is a magic cracker. Now, now any uh, college film students immediately know what that poster's in reference to. It's, it's, um, it's Colorado. Can I make weed jokes in Colorado? <laughs> Um, so that was an overreach. Um, but some evangelicals in the last century have gone the other direction and reduced it to a happy meal. No spiritual nutritional value. Now, no, neither of those was the position of the early and undivided church. In the first thousand years, the position the church taught universally was the real presence of Jesus in the bread and wine. Both Luther and Calvin taught that. When they asked the early church, well, well, how is Jesus present? They would just say, well, that's a holy mystery, defining it's way above our pay grade. And that's a pretty good answer. Now, what's most important, though, is not what happens to the bread and wine. It's what happens to you. The important thing is not what happens to the bread and wine. It's what happens to you in it. It's really... The Lord's Supper is an altar call every week. Paul said it like this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. The worship team sang that this morning. God is for you. I once thought of sacraments as what I did for God, but Jesus said sacraments are what he did, does, and is still doing for you. By the way, Paul uses that expression one other time in another place, uh, same book. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That, that word is, um, that word delivered, that's paradosis in Greek. And it gets translated traditio in Latin. Traditio, it's the verb form of tradition. What it really means is passing on, handing over, delivered. It's, it's a runner passing on a baton. And so the language that Paul uses for passing on the gospel, he uses for passing on the Lord's Supper. Literally, I traditioned you. I traditioned you the gospel. I traditioned you the Lord's Supper. He uses the same words because the Lord's Supper teaches the gospel. You know, the, the, it's really like the UPS guy at my door. You know, unlike Amazon who wants to dump and run, leave me a little picture on my email, the UPS guy wants a handoff. He wants, he wants it to come from his hand to mine. That's handing over. And we have another word for that in the church, for delivered, handed over, traditioned. It's discipleship. It's discipleship. So tonight we're going to finish by handing over. You know, it's, it's, it's dark in here, so I keep thinking it's night. <laughs> I know it's lunchtime. We're, we're going to have the meal of the body of Christ. And we're going to hand over that which Jesus modeled as take, bless, break, give. And, and we're going to use a really unique prayer to do it with. It, it's the oldest Eucharistic prayer known it was written by an old Roman bishop named Hippolytus. And Hippolytus in about 220 AD was angry with the young clergy for messing up the communion prayer. So he wrote it down how they used to pray it in the old days when he was a young guy in the 180s. So I got to ask you, are, are you ready to be handed what Jesus handed Peter, what Peter handed Paul and what Paul handed the church? Okay, then stand with me. <laughs>